This is The Guardian. I'm Jane Lee, coming to you from Gadigal Land, and this is The Full Story. When Peter Dutton announced the Liberal Party would oppose an Indigenous voice to Parliament at a press conference last week, one key frontbencher was missing. With the referendum due later this year, I believe the time for the voice has come. I resign without rancour or bitterness, and I will support the referendum being put this year. Now, Shadow Minister for Indigenous Australians Julian Lisa has resigned from the front bench, shining a spotlight on the divisions within the Liberal Party on The Voice. I've had many respectful discussions with colleagues about The Voice over the past year, but ultimately I haven't been able to persuade them. It's clear that the Shadow Cabinet and the Party Room and I have taken a different position in relation to The Voice. Today, Chief Political Correspondent Paul Karp and political reporter Josh Butler interview Lisa on why he's breaking with the party line to campaign for a yes vote. So far, it looks like no one is joining Julian Lisa in quitting the front bench. But what his decision means now is that those Liberals that want to support yes, like Bridget Archer and Andrew Bragg, have got some major reinforcements and firepower now with the former shadow minister quitting that role in in order to campaign. It's Thursday, the 13th of April. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy to assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Obviously, the the coalition or the the Liberal Party has outlined last week uh, a a commitment or, I guess, a focus on local and regional voices and the government's proposed model is for this national voice. Is it your view that a set of local and regional voices needs a national voice on top? Can one work without the other? Look, I I am 100% committed to the local and regional voices. We heard so much about those in 2018 in community. It's what I've heard subsequently since I've um, been the, uh, the, the Shadow Minister for Indigenous Australians too. It's where the dial will be shifted on the ground. Um, I think that there is benefit of having a local and regional body that cascades into a national body, but I think the national body ha- has some important work to do, but it doesn't have oodles and oodles of work to do because I think people misunderstand this. In 1967, um, at the referendum that we passed by 90%, it's amazing to think you could get 90% for anything today, we, we gave the Commonwealth power to make laws about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. But the truth is, although the Commonwealth has the power to make any law it wants about any aspect of the lives of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, there's actually very few laws that that are made and very few programs that are run by the Commonwealth. 
Most of the laws and most of the programs that relate to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are actually run at the state and territory level. And, and most of the problems, challenges and issues that are raised with us are raised uh, as problems, challenges and issues at the local level. That's why the local and regional are so important. And for the national body to be effective on those issues which relate to Indigenous people, which we do deal with, I think they have to be firmly plugged into a system of local and regional bodies. I think that's how you, how you get this to be its most successful. Well, I, I guess to, to pick up on that, Mark, you know, obviously Linda Burney and the government have said they are committed to that local and regional process, but we haven't exactly heard exactly what their plans would be. The, to, to go to a different topic, like that, that, that's a very specific one. Let's sort of broaden out a little bit. I think there's probably a lot of people who are coming to this um, voice discussion at the moment. They're starting to tune into the referendum, they're starting to learn about it and hear what it is. Could you tell us in your, you know, you've been involved in this process for a very long time. How do you think the voice would help close the gap? How do you think the voice would actually make a practical impact on improving the lives of Indigenous Australians? I, I guess the question being, what, what would a voice do and why is it important? Look, I think the voice has one key function, uh, and that is improving the, the services, uh, the delivery of government in, in local communities. It means ground-truthing the ideas that are developed in Canberra. Take an example that I know the Minister's currently working on and her predecessor, Ken Wyatt, was working on it too. There's a um, remote area employment scheme called the Community Development Program. It's been criticised for uh, not being responsive to local communities, and it plays differently in different places. An important role that the National Voice could have would be to advise the Minister in reviewing this program, how should the Community Development Program be reformed uh, so that it, it is more effective in different communities, uh, so that uh, uh, some of the uh, Work-like activity that is done in those communities benefits those communities, so there is more encouragement for people to actually get involved in the program and to participate, uh, and so that there's a, that there are realistic schemes for where there are thin employment markets, where there's just no real employment opportunity, but also incentives where there are good employment opportunities to actually move from the scheme into employment. And, and that requires a sort of community-by-community community approach. I think when you make policies just from... You know, the smart and well-meaning bureaucrats and, and parliamentarians like myself who uh, take a view from Canberra without ground-truthing things, you don't shift the dial and you don't close the gap. And I think we've seen that in too many instances. And that's why I think the voice could make a real difference. It can help us uh, understand better what's going on on the ground and uh, ensure that better policy is made that's more responsive to community. Now, this week, uh, the Liberal Party uh, determined its position to support constitutional recognition, but not uh, the voice in the Constitution. Uh, you had differences with that position and, and resigned from the front bench. I think in your first answer, you've touched on uh, why symbolic recognition isn't enough. Could we ask why, in your view, does the voice need to go in the Constitution, not just legislation? So I think the first thing is the issues of constitutional recognition, you can date back to the 1930s to the great Yorta Yorta man, William Cooper, presenting his petition to King George. You can date it back to John Howard in 1999, um, attempting to put forward his preamble. You can date it to uh, effectively his 2007 commitment that if re-elected, he was going to, to have another crack at this. But the point is the debate's been going a fair time. And Uluru changed things. Uluru, with its dialogues and its consultation, led to the view that um, uh, Indigenous people wanted something that wasn't just symbolic in the Constitution. In fact, John Anderson, the former Deputy Prime Minister, chaired a committee back in 2014 that found the same thing, that symbolic recognition for Indigenous people was not enough. 
So constitutional recognition has come to mean for Indigenous people a voice in the constitution. That's not the case for all Indigenous people, but it's certainly the case for a number of Indigenous leaders who've been participating in in, in this debate. Uh, and, and I think they want something practical because, you know, what's the point of doing this unless it's going to shift the dial on the ground? And I think that's a legitimate argument. And they also want to have an institution that will have some sort of permanency. And I don't have a problem with that. I think uh, I think our constitution creates structures of government and structures of governance. And that's what The Voice is designed to be. Next, what does Julian Lisa's version of The Voice look like? Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Now, mid last year, um, your appointment as Shadow Minister for Indigenous Australians raised hopes uh, that the opposition might offer bipartisanship on The Voice. Could you tell us uh, why you took the job then and what would have needed to happen in the intervening months to get coalition support? I want to just pay tribute to Peter Dutton for a moment, if I may. Um, Peter said at the beginning of this process, when he first became opposition leader, he came with an open mind. And he genuinely did. I've had lots of discussions with Peter. I've travelled with him to remote communities. His appointment of me, given my long history in this space as both Shadow Attorney General and Shadow Minister for Indigenous Australians, was a down payment on that genuine commitment he had to to having an open mind and a, and a real engagement to try and get this through. And I have to ask you to excuse me for being partisan, but it's true. The way in which the government dealt with this did not encourage people on, on our side to... Uh, to see that it was being dealt with fairly. I, I wish they dealt with it differently. We wanted the government to respond to Calma Langton properly. Uh, we wanted them to set up a proper process to deal with the amendment. We wanted them to, to, to put in legislation the form of words, the form of, uh, of the national voice. Peter wrote to them with 15 questions at the beginning of the year. There wasn't an attempt after that to actually properly engage. It was just a sense of outrage that, that any questions had been asked in the first place. And I think that's just such a missed opportunity there. I don't think the government really sought a genuine bipartisan consensus from us. And, and it contrasted to, to the period when we were in government, because throughout the process of referendum council, throughout the, the, the two joint select committees, there was a lockstep process between the prime minister on our side and the leader of the opposition, who was largely Bill Shorten for that period, to try and forward these things through. And that process just didn't happen. I, I had lots of good meetings with Linda. I've got great respect for Linda Burney. We'd have discussions. I don't want to go into the nature of that discussions. That's not appropriate. But they were not of the sort of engagement that had characterised things in the past, um, where it was, we want to hear your ideas, or here, you keep saying to do this. Well, here, here's a pathway to, do, to doing that. 
because I think there was a, a narrow pathway where things could have been different, where people put forward the detail, where, where we'd worked on this together, where we'd, we'd followed the Calma Langton roadmap. But ultimately, that wasn't happening. And uh, um, and, and I think that's part of the reason that, that, that the party room came to the position it did. You, you, you've raised the 15 questions that Peter Dutton um, has had asked, and, and obviously yourself, you've also asked some of those questions in Parliament and other places. Labor and, and the Liberal Party obviously have a difference of opinion in how much detail should be out there or not out there and that sort of thing. And I think the government has committed to releasing more detail as we go through the referendum process. But could I ask you, what level of detail do you think the government should release before the referendum and when? I mean, there's been suggestions about you know an exposure draft of what the legislation to set up the voice would look like, you know, should they release, I guess, basic principles of how many members the voice would have or how they're selected or what happens to their representations? I mean, the government's point of view is that those details will be a matter for the government of the day to set via legislation, but it will be this government that sets up the first iteration of the voice. What detail do you think they should put out there to to inform the process? Josh, the high watermark of, of this is that the parliament is presented with a bill, that it is worked through the usual parliamentary processes, committees and, and the like, that it passes the parliament, uh, that, it, that its commencement could be contingent on the passage of a successful referendum. But it means that everybody knows what we're voting for. It means that all of the questions can be answered. Uh, and I think you have a better debate when people can answer all the questions. Without that detail being settled, it means that the, the debate ends up being broader. There's more matters of, of contest and dispute and people people have questions that are not answered. Uh, and I'm sad that the government didn't do that because I think that, that actually is best practice. And running it through the parliamentary process, through committees, you end up building some consensus around what the body should look like. And as, as you say, we have a referendum this year. The parliament's got um, another year and a half to run after that. Uh, it's clear that this parliament will legislate uh, the first iteration of what the voice looks like. And yes, it, it will be hard to change. And at least uh, having a first crack at it will give us the best indication of, uh, of what there is. Now, the government hasn't chosen that path. The government has chosen instead to uh, uh, to, to be selective about the detail it's released. Uh, I do think they need to be able to think about well, what are the reasonable questions that people are asking and how can they address them? Because What's going to happen when we start the referendum campaign is there'll be lots of community debates in town halls, at Rotary Clubs, at PNCs, at church halls, all of that stuff. And people will ask the same questions that are being asked in Peter's questions and in other questions. And it, it just makes the job of people like myself who want to advocate for this harder without that detail. We reported last week that you offered an alternative to Shadow Cabinet to preserve the option of a free vote at least until the parliamentary inquiry reported back. That would have bought you more time to try and get the changes that you want that are more likely to win conservative support. Why, why was that option rejected? Why was the no uh, locked in before the parliamentary inquiry reports back? Look, I, I don't want to go into um, matters that discussed at, at Shadow Cabinet. I, I, I think uh, I should I should leave that. I, I think I might just make a, a couple of general observations. I think the first is that I'm going to continue to advocate um, for the matters that I raised in the in the press club speech. Um, the press club model, I think, is a way of finding common ground. Uh, it's a way of trying to bring this debate together. Um, and what it, what it does effectively is it calls for a financial commitment to the rollout of local and regional bodies, and it basically says there are a couple of aspects of the government's proposed amendment that are causing problems and concerns 
you can still have the voice, you can have it in the constitution, you can respect the supremacy of parliament, but you avoid those concerns if you remove the symbolic statement at the at the top of the uh, uh, at the top of the section, and if you remove clause two, which deals with the issues around um, executive government, which has been the subject of some debate, and also the scope of the matters that the voice can advise on, which is matters relating to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. In my view, of course, the voice should be able to advise on those things. Of course, it should be able to uh, advise the executive, but there's no reason why those matters shouldn't be left to parliament. And I think if we leave those matters to parliament, like we're leaving everything else of the voice to parliament, we actually remove one of the big barnacles in the referendum, and that will encourage more people to vote yes. To, to stay with that shadow cabinet meeting, I guess there, there was some confusion about the Liberal position because there was there was reported that there was paperwork in the party room that said the policy would include a legislated national voice, but then Peter Dutton came out at the, at the press conference um, afterwards and you know criticised what he called the Canberra voice. Uh, we, we talked earlier on about you know uh, whether a national voice has to click into the local and regional voices model, but can you? Give any clarity on what the Liberal position is. Is is there a legislated national voice in that Liberal agreed position? Well, I think Peter stated the the, the position, which is the support for local and regional voices uh, and for constitutional recognition. Uh, the position is as as he has stated it. The position I'm arguing for is like the uh, the coalition to argue for local and regional voices, but I'm also arguing for that leading into a national voice, and I'm arguing for. Uh, that uh, the, the constitutional amendment to be adjusted in the ways that I've suggested. And I think that package will bring more Australians on board. It's about trying to find common ground. I think adopting an all or nothing approach can lead to us getting nothing. And I think that would be a tragedy given that we go into a referendum, uh, given all the work that's been been put in. Um, we want to try and maximise the number of people who are voting yes. And that means listening to the arguments of people who have been advocates of the no case who've raised issues and doubts and try to work out how can we address some of them and to come to it with a, a spirit of goodwill. So that, that's a no to a national voice in the Liberal Party model then? Well, that's the, the way in which the leader has stated it is, is, is the policy of the party, which is local and regional um, voices legislated and, uh, and, and a process of constitutional recognition. So you, you said yesterday on, on Tuesday as well that um, you'll be campaigning for yes. Um, I, I think you indicated that um, even if you obviously be pushing your your press club model for the next six weeks, but that you would be campaigning for yes. I think probably no matter the result of those representations, is that, is that right? Yes, I, I wanted to make it clear to people that I'm not playing a game here. That um, I, I am I'm committed to this referendum. I'm committed to seeing it get through. But because of because of my strong commitment, because of my long involvement in this. I want people to, to believe me and take my bona fides at my word that when I'm putting forward these amendments, they're not done to play some game. They are just genuinely my view. There are Australians who are concerned about the voice, who want to find a way to vote yes, but the current model raises questions and the current model is too much a take it or leave it model. And, and I think the government can really create a lot of goodwill around this by adopting some of the suggestions I've put forward. And just one, one very last one, just to sort of wrap things up in the in this area of things. What what does that campaign look like? I mean, obviously, there's been a, a few other Liberal um, colleagues of yours in the Federal Party room that have indicated they'll be um, supporting a yes vote as well. What does this look like for the Liberal Party? Is there a voice equivalent of the Liberals and Nationals for a yes campaign that we saw during the marriage law postal survey, for instance? 
Look, I, I understand there's some talk about about that sort of thing, but my focus at the moment has just been really on trying to get uh, the press club model up. Um, I think there'll be many months to work out what uh, what, what a sort of campaign will look like after after that. But if we can get the press club model up, I, I think it's a real game changer. Simon Birmingham, who's a leading moderate, has said that the Liberals need to avoid being perceived as the nasty party. Uh, would a free vote on voice um, ha- have helped knock the hard edges off the Liberal Party and, and show that, um, you know, you can be engaged uh, in, in social issues uh, as well? Look, I think one of the great benefits of the Liberal Party is that we believe in freedom and conscience. Our front bench is bound to the decisions of shadow cabinet and the party room. Um, but our backbench um, are able to campaign on whatever issues that, the, that they wish to and vote however they wish to. And that's different to the Labor Party. When you join the Labor Party, you sign the pledge and you have to be bound by the decisions of caucus, whether you're on the front bench or the backbench. I resign from the front bench uh, in order to exercise my freedom to campaign for something I believe in. I think that's a great strength of our party. And I think, you know, the fact that um, I will be out there campaigning, yes, the fact that uh, Jeremy Rockliffe, the Premier of Tasmania, the Liberal Premier of Tasmania, will be campaigning, yes, indicates that we are we are a broad church. It indicates one of the strengths of our party. And and I think uh, that's important. I hope to provide some some leadership for those people who uh, uh, who would vote for us, who, who are inclined to support the voice, to say, yeah, it's OK. There are some Liberals who are out there that, 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 that say that this is a good idea. Now, you've made a great virtue of having a free say, uh, so we'd be very keen to hear, uh, other than The Voice, are there other differences of approach or policy uh, that you can offer now that you're, the, the shackles of, uh, of solidarity on the, the shadow front bench are off and now that you're a backbencher? Are there other things the party should be doing differently? Look, I'm sorry to disappoint your, your, your listeners and, and your readers, but you know, I, I, I don't think that you should go off and do this every day. This is not a decision I took lightly. Um, uh, this, you really have to ask yourself very cl- closely about, you know, what are your values? What do you believe in? What are your lines in the sand? What do you want to demonstrate to your children uh, that has been important to you, important enough to stand to stand up for something where you believe in, even when it costs? And that's why I made the decision in, in relation to, to this. But I'm a uh, I, I, I'm, a, I'm a loyal Liberal. I'm the Liberal member for Barahara. I support the leadership of Peter Dutton. I'm, I'm not going to be off, uh, running off and creating all sorts of different agendas on, on, on other issues. Um, I, I'm here to do a job, to try and work to, to get this referendum uh, uh, amended uh, and then to go and campaign for it. That's why I'm on the back bench because I've got the freedom to do that now. And that's what I want to concentrate on doing. I think that might be all that we have time for. Thank you so much for joining us, Julian. I know that it's not every day uh, that one makes a momentous decision uh, like quitting the front bench. So so thank you for joining us and, and explaining your thoughts on this important topic. Thanks so much, Paul. And thanks, Josh. Good to be with you. That was Liberal MP Julian Lisa speaking with Chief Political Correspondent Paul Karp and political reporter Josh Butler. You can find a full version of that conversation and other interviews with leading federal politicians on our Australian Politics podcast. And if you're interested in finding out more about The Voice, I recommend you go and listen to my conversation with Yes campaigner Thomas Mayo for full story from earlier this week. It's called Thomas Mayo on what Peter Dutton got wrong about The Voice. I'll post a link to that in our show notes. That's it for today. This episode was produced by Miles Herbert, sound design and mixing by Tegan Nichols. The executive producer for this episode was Miles Martignoni. I'm Jane Lee. 
Catch you next time. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Join us today during the Jeep celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15,178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.